coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. An infectious disease expert tells about the COVID-19 vaccine trial underway at Upstate Medical University and how you can participate. It's a uh, phase three trial where we, uh, in addition to confirming uh, the safety of the vaccine, uh, we also look to uh, see if the vaccine does what it's supposed to do, which in this case would be to protect people from uh, the disease caused by infection with SARS-CoV-2. And a doctor who specializes in kidney transplants shares his new formula for reducing complications. The whole purpose of this is to get an ideal exposure to these drugs for each individual patient. So you can, you can vary the doses of either one as long as it stays within that therapeutic window. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On today's show, we'll hear about a new method of reducing complications after a kidney transplant. Then we'll discuss how a vaccine is developed. But first, would you volunteer to test a potential COVID-19 vaccine in a trial underway at Upstate? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A number of COVID-19 vaccines are being studied, and one trial is underway here at Upstate Medical University. Here with details about the study and how you can participate is Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's the chief of Upstate's Infectious Disease Division. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Thank you for having me. Well, this is exciting. Um, what can you tell us about this potential vaccine? I agree. It's uh, it's very exciting. So uh, the vaccine uh, comes from a cooperation between Pfizer and a German company called BioNTech. Um, it's a, a phase three trial. Uh, phase three trials are trials where we, uh, in addition to confirming uh, the safety of the vaccine, uh, we also look to uh, see if the vaccine does what it's supposed to do, which in this case would be to protect people from uh, the disease caused by infection with SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID. Uh, they intend to enroll approximately 30,000 people uh, globally uh, across more than 120 uh, sites. There are uh, more than 40 sites in the United States, and, you know, we're you know, we're very pleased that SUNY Upstate was one of the sites uh, uh, chosen to be uh, to be a testing site. So when you said it's phase three, uh, does that mean that we've already shown this product to be safe? That's a good question. So, you know, typically there are uh, three phases that a vaccine goes through. Uh, to get to the point where um, the FDA can make a determination whether the vaccine is safe and effective. Uh, the first phase, phase one, is typically in a small number of people and it's primarily focused on safety. So looking for um, frequent uh, safety signals that would pop up in a small number of people. And then uh, phase two is uh, larger numbers of people. It could be a couple hundred people. Uh, it still focuses on safety, but it also uh, starts to look in depth, you might also look at different doses, you might look at different formulations or variations of the vaccine. You would look at a dosing schedule. And then phase three, um, you know, once you have demonstrated uh, safety in those phase one and phase two trials, that's when you embark upon uh, phase three or what we call uh, efficacy, uh, efficacy trials. So safety really is always sort of a primary objective of these studies. But once you get to phase three, uh, you're, you're again, as I mentioned, you're looking to see that the vaccine did what it was supposed to do. So we at least know it's safe in the sense that it's it won't hurt somebody, but we don't yet know if it's going to work to protect you against COVID. So what we know is that in the you know hundreds of people that have already received the vaccine, uh, there were no concerning uh, safety signals. 
Um, but, you know, demonstrating safety of a vaccine, uh, that is kind of a, a continuous process. I mean, that process continues even after the vaccine is licensed, even after the vaccine is um, kind of rolled out and millions and millions of people are receiving it. Um, safety is uh, safety information is always being uh, is always being collected. It's a continuous process. So you mentioned um, Pfizer. There's a bunch of different uh, pharmaceuticals that are working toward a vaccine. Are they all designed to do something different inside the body? So the the goal of all the vaccines is to generate an immune response. Uh, such that if the person were to come in contact with the virus, um, their immune response would recognize that virus as a, an invader <laughs> uh, and that the immune response would then attack the virus and uh, prevent the virus from making the person sick. Um, now, the mechanism by which they generate that immune response or um, how the vaccine uh, components are delivered to the individual. That's where you run into uh, that's where you run into some uh, to some variation. Okay, so this one, how does this one that we're using at Upstate compare with other vaccines in development? What what does it do to the body? Yeah, so so this vaccine is what we call an mRNA vaccine or a messenger RNA vaccine. Uh, it's in the same category of vaccine that Moderna, which is the other uh, company that's in phase three testing right now, um, it, it's the same sort of uh, concept where um, the, the genetic code of the spike protein on the virus. So you can imagine, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen pictures of the virus, but you know, you can imagine um, you know, like a tennis ball and the tennis ball is covered with all these knobs and those knobs would be the spike protein. And it's that spike protein that when the virus comes in to contact with um, a cell in the human body, it's that knob which allows that virus to attach to that cell and then the virus to get into the cell uh, and then for little baby viruses to be made and then to go out and infect other, other cells. So the concept is that if you can generate an immune response, let's say antibodies, for example, if you can generate antibodies that will bind to that spike protein, then theoretically you could prevent that virus cell interaction uh, and infection uh, from occurring. And therefore you could prevent virus from replicating and you could prevent people from, uh, from getting sick. And so what these vaccines do is they have the genetic code of that spike protein, uh, it gets packaged and in, injected into the person, and then the person's own cells um, uh, picks up that uh, picks up that genetic code, and it starts informing the body that hey, this is a uh, you know this is a a foreign genetic code. We need to make an immune response against it, and then that immune response kind of lays in wait until you um, uh, come in contact with the virus in nature. And then it remembers, oh, hey, I've seen this before. Let's deploy our immune response uh, uh, to that virus and uh, neutralize that virus. So that's that's kind of how, how it works. Um, you know, there are other vaccines that, um, you know, there are live virus vaccines. So where you would actually be given a form of uh, the entire virus, but the virus is weakened. And so it only replicates a little bit. Um, so not enough to make you sick, but enough for you to um, uh, generate immune response. Or there are killed vaccines. So they take the virus and then they uh, inactivate it with chemicals, for example. And so um, so there's, you know, th these different types of uh, approaches, but, that, but that's the one that Pfizer is, uh, uh, um, utilizing. I've heard this trial described as um, being randomized, placebo-controlled, observer-blinded. Can you interpret that for us? Sure. So, you know, that really is the gold standard for um, how we like to do, uh, how we like to do vaccine trials or drug trials or any kind of, of clinical research experiment where we're trying to determine 
if an intervention has some kind of uh, has, has a, a beneficial effect. And the reason that we use these types of trials is because we want to eliminate um, bias, either uh, conscious bias or unconscious bias. So when we say it's randomized, um, what we mean is that in this particular trial, it's randomized one to one. So what that means is 50% of people will get um, placebo, 50% of people will get the actual experimental vaccine. Uh, when we say that it's um, blinded, what we mean is that nobody will know who's getting what. And it's double-blinded, meaning not only will the volunteer not know who's getting what, but the team of investigators, so myself and the other physicians and the clinical research coordinators and the other members of the team, they also will not know who's getting what. Um, and then placebo control means that instead of... Uh, you know, we just are using a placebo, which in this case is just uh, water. Uh, in some trials, they may use um, an actual licensed vaccine uh, as the as the control. In this case, we're using just uh, uh, just just water. So half the people get vaccine, half the people get placebo. Nobody knows who gets what. In this way, um, people cannot uh, uh, cannot make guesses or be biased in uh, as we collect our information. So will all of the people be exposed to the COVID virus? Um, so, yeah, so that's a question. Uh, that's a good question. Um, and I'll kind of put a finer point on it because uh, the reason is because um, there is actually a lot of discussion right now whether or not um, scientists should deliberately um, do trials where they deliberately expose people uh, to coronaviruses. And we call uh, we call this uh, human challenge trials or uh, experimental human infection um, uh, trials. So th we we are not doing that. And so um, the other way that someone could be exposed, obviously, to uh, uh, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus is uh, in nature. We're lucky we have a very small amount of, of virus that is circulating in Central New York right now. Uh, it is possible that anybody. Um, living in the United States right now could be uh, theoretically exposed um, to the virus. So, so the answer to your question is sort of <laughs> yes and no. Uh, yes, everyone is at risk of exposure to the virus naturally, but no, we are not um, purposefully uh, exposing people to the virus. But and the people in the uh, trial are not being protected either. They go on about living their lives, right? I mean, they do. Absolutely. Yep. So, you know, as I mentioned, there are more than 40 sites in the United States. Some of those sites are in places like central New York, where there's very little uh, COVID activity currently. Um, and then some of those places are in areas like California and Texas and other southern states where there is a ton of COVID activity um, right now. So, uh, and, and then, you know, remember, we're also following these people for, for two years. Um, and there's you know, there's a reason why we follow people for, you know, for a long time. It, it does not mean it's going to take two years to make a determination of whether or not the vaccine worked or not. They're hoping, the company's hoping that they'll have that information by the end of this year. Um, but we will be following people for a long period of time and we'll be in on them to make sure that they're not experiencing symptoms of COVID. And if they are, we're going to figure out if it is COVID and we're going to take care of them. We'll be right back with more about the COVID-19 vaccine trial at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Infectious Disease Chief Dr. Stephen Thomas about developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Let me ask you, did you believe that recruiting people to participate in this trial was going to be a challenge? Uh, I did not because even before we uh, even before we were selected to be one of the vaccine trial sites, uh, you know, I would ha I would have a lot of people engaging me and asking, 
you know, are, are we going to have a vaccine? Are we going to be able to test the vaccine here? You know, let us know if there's going to be a vaccine trial because we'd like to participate. Uh, and I can tell you, we've had, um, we've had well over a thousand people who have um, either registered through the central website or have called us or who have emailed us um, raising their hand and wanting to participate. Wow. And is it, it, it sounds like it's mostly altruistic. They want to help us, you know, get a vaccine that works, right? Yes, I mean, absolutely. And we are looking for people, uh, two kind of big groups of people, looking for people who are risk of infection. So at high risk of infection, people who, if they are infected, have a higher risk of getting severely ill or a bad outcome. Um, so that first group of people would be healthcare workers or essential employees in um, uh, other industries or uh, first responders. So, so people that through the nature of their uh, daily lives, occupations, et cetera, um, they are, they are forward facing people and they have potential to be infected. And people in the, the latter group, um, are people that we've been talking about since the beginning of the epidemic. So these would be, you know, people over 60 years of age, people with pre-existing medical problems, uh, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, um, other, other groups that we have identified that um, have higher rates of severe disease, higher rates of hospitalization, and higher rates of, uh, of death. So those are the two big groups of people that we are, um, you know, that we're interested in. Uh, that we're interested in recruiting. Uh, I, we get the question a lot, you know, are people compensated? Um, you know, we, we, we do provide people uh, financial compensation uh, for their time, uh, but I can tell you that it is not enough compensation uh, to um, coerce somebody into doing this trial or to really incentivize somebody to do this trial. So if, if you're not doing it for the mere purpose of, uh, you know, trying to support science and trying to support, um, you know, us finding a solution to this problem, uh, then I would, I would say that you should not, uh, that you should not participate. Cause really that's the only, um, that's the only reason why you would participate in a project like this. Does a person need to have health insurance in order to participate? So, you know, there are lots of different kind of infrastructures put in place to take care of um, volunteers. And so if if somebody um, becomes sick during the course of, of the trial, um, it's built into the trial design that we are going to take uh, to take care of those people. Um, and we take care of people um, for any kind of illnesses or injuries that are part of uh, participating. But say, for example, you know, if somebody were to come to their, <laughs> someone comes to their visit and then they walk and they, you know, walk out of the clinic and miss a step off the curb and they, uh, you know, they hurt their leg, um, that's on them. That's the, the, the you know, the trial, is, it, you know, is not responsible for that. We can't, we can't, uh, um, you know, take ownership over that. So, uh, yeah. So however they would normally you know, care for themselves for normal, sure. you know, routine things, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's still their responsibility. Are there uh, any conditions that would disqualify someone from participating? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we're enrolling people from 18 to 85 years of age, right? So we expect that people are going to have um, pre-existing medical, um, medical conditions. And again, we are trying to develop a vaccine that will protect those people because they are at the highest risk of a bad outcome if they do get they do get infected. Every medical provider who's part of the study team has the responsibility to work with the volunteer to understand their medical histories and to understand that the problem that if the problems they do have uh, that they're being adequately managed and that they're adequately controlled. And if they are, so for example, if someone has high blood pressure, but they take blood pressure medicine and the blood pressure's um, in a reasonable range, then that's somebody that, um, you know, that could participate in the study. But if somebody had a blood pressure that was out of control and they weren't on medication and they weren't taking care of it, we would not want that person to participate. We would want them to go to their doctor and get their blood pressure under control. 
um, you know, people that have uh, people that have uh, you know active uh, diseases like cancer or people that have um, you know rheumatologic diseases or autoimmune diseases. Uh, these are folks that we, we would not want to participate in these experimental um, in an experimental trial. We would prefer that they get their you know that they work with their doctor to get their medical conditions under uh, under control. What about someone who um, survived COVID? No. So we what we're interested in is uh, we need people who have not been previously infected because if they've been previously infected, they already have an immune response, um, uh, which they acquired naturally right through natural infection, uh, and that could uh, we won't be able to. Uh, uh, adequately evaluate their immune response to the vaccine because they already have a pre-existing immune response, and so, uh, so people who have already been infected, um, you know, they, for this particular trial, that they would not be eligible to enroll. Well, walk me through, if you will, uh, what would a person expect if they were selected to participate in the study? What's involved in that? Yeah, so the, you know, the first thing that's involved is that they are provided. Uh, what we call a consent form. So the consent form, um, it, it talks about the, the study. It describes what the purpose of the study is. It describes the vaccine. It describes what that person can expect. It talks about risks of participation. It talks about um, benefits of participation. It talks about um, what will happen if they if they get ill. So the first thing that happens is that they have a conversation with me or one of the other study investigators um, uh, about that consent form and and we answer questions and we ask them questions to make sure that they understand you know what what uh, um, what they're proposing to get uh, you know to get involved with um, and then you know they go through a medical screening to make sure they're healthy enough to participate and then once they're selected to participate they either receive uh, two injections of the vaccine. Or the placebo. Remember, nobody knows which. It's separated by about 21 days, those two doses. Um, and then they're seen in a number of follow-up visits. Um, so the, the total duration of the study is two years. The total number of visits is about six. And um, about three of those visits occur in the, uh, in the first month. So it is a long period of time uh, uh, to commit, but the visits are infrequent over that period of uh, that period of time. Um, and what they can expect in addition to getting these experimental, either the experimental vaccine or placebo, is that they're gonna, um, we're gonna ask them for a couple of tubes of blood every time they come into the clinic. Again, primarily to measure um, immune responses to, uh, uh, to the vaccine. And then the last thing they can expect is that they're gonna be watched very closely by our team for the next two years and that if they um, develop symptoms, that could be consistent with COVID. Uh, that we're gonna, you know, have a conversation with them, and and uh, we're going to figure out if, in fact, it is COVID, and then we're gonna help uh, work with them and their doctor to that they get uh, that they get proper care. So, if if these people in the study are not ultimately exposed to COVID in the community, how are we gonna know whether the vaccine is working? Well, remember, there's more than 40 sites all around the country, and this is one of the reasons why you do these very, very large multi-center studies in that, um, you know, if, if in some parts of the country there's not much COVID, like where we are, um, we may not be able to tell, we may not be able to generate information that tells the FDA whether the vaccine worked or not. Uh, we will be generating information that will tell um, you know, is it safe? Is it safe in all these different populations of people? What do immune responses look like? What do they look like um, over time? Whereas in other sites, so as I mentioned, like, you know, the Carolinas or Florida or Texas or uh, Alabama, um, you know, Louisiana, California, these other locations where there is a ton of uh, COVID transmission right now, in those sites, they would be able to acquire information about who's protected and who's not by uh, by the vaccine. So it's, I mean, this is why you have you know diversification of your sites because you can get bits and pieces of information from all of them to then you know aggregate all that information to create um, 
you know the story uh, the over or overarching story of of uh, of safety and uh, effectiveness and you mentioned too this is an international trial so there's more than 40, 40 sites in in america but a number of other sites in other countries where cultures are different um I mean, so we have a, a huge collection of data to work with, right? Correct, right. So there, there are sites in Europe and there are sites in, uh, in Latin America. Well, I want to let listeners know where they can find more information. Um, the email I have is trials, T-R-I-A-L-S, at upstate.edu, and the phone number 315-464-9869. Uh, and is there any other advice that you'd like to give to someone who's considering? There's one other website that they can go to. It's called uh, covidvaccinestudy.com. And um, once you once you go onto that website, bring through a couple of questions uh, to determine um, whether you would be eligible or not. And then it would provide you with uh, a number of different places uh, in New York and other states, local, uh, nearby states, where they are uh, testing the vaccine so that you can choose the closest uh, site to go to. Wonderful. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more because there's a number of vaccines from different makers that are in clinical trial now, and it sort of seems like they're racing, but I'm not really sure what they're competing for. Is, is there a race to be the first to come up with a vaccine? Well, you know, these are uh, these are for profit um, companies, right? They have to uh, they have to secure a return on their financial investment so that they can continue to develop and work on, you know, health problems. You know, that being said, the federal government uh, has infused billions and billions of dollars into into these companies to help them uh, kind of kickstart and move us as uh, you know, move as fast as possible. Um, you know, there's always, and, and I'm not, I have never worked for a pharmaceutical company. I mean, but I can tell you from working closely with them, you know, for the you know, 20 years, yes, there's always, there is always what I would say a healthy competition between uh, companies that are trying to, um, you know, trying to be first to come up with a solution to a problem. But I think in this particular case, um, I think the speed that you see is um, a reaction to uh, the dire um, situation that the planet is in right now and the need to find a vaccine solution so that partnering vaccination with continued use of public health interventions, we can try to um, drastically uh, uh, bend, bend the curve, flatten the curve, uh, decrease the curve so we can uh, kind of, you know, through this thing and, and come back out on the other side as quickly um, as possible. I think it's also recognized that, uh, you know, the scope of the problem is a global scope, right? And we have seven and a half billion people on the planet, approximately one vaccine and one manufacturer is not going to be able to uh, service that entire, you know, global need. And so I think there's also multiple groups racing because there's going to need to be multiple, um, you know, vaccines uh, uh, to, to most effectively uh, combat the virus. So, so that's my, that's my interpretation of the, uh, uh, of the race. Is there a discussion about who will get the vaccine first? Uh, or is it going to go to the higher risk populations, the people that are sort of in the trials now, or is there is it going to be decided some other way? Yes, there is a uh, and has been uh, you know for weeks now a very intense global discussion about who should um, who should have access to the vaccine uh, first. That's not only um, you know that's a discussion uh, at the level of of nations and, and the World Health Organization. Uh, there have been statements in the past about um, and conjecture that, uh, you know, countries that have invested monies should have priority and have first access, um, which, as you can imagine, drew some pretty rapid uh, um, and spirited responses um, 
mostly, uh, mostly uh, from the concept of um, you know ethics and global access and uh, disadvantaged populations and you know trying to trying to uh, um, really focus on solutions at a global level versus uh, you know who who invested the money and who should get it first and and I think I mean ultimately the way that vaccine um, access and distribution and use is determined is typically by um, where is the public health need. So who's getting infected, who's getting sick, who's dying, who is driving other infections, um, and you know who could we vaccinate um, that would give us the greatest bang for the buck in terms of interrupting transmission within societies and that sort of thing. So, uh, and, and that can be different whether you're in you know, Latin America or you know, Europe or the United States or, or Asia or South Asia or Africa. Um, but yeah, so all those discussions are ongoing. And then, you know, the second question of, well, what, um, what about people who are participating in these, in these trials? And that's really a question for it's really a question for the company, uh, but what typically happens is that if somebody's in a placebo-controlled trial, they get a placebo, but the vaccine is determined to be safe and they get a license. Those people typically get vaccinated, um, you know, once the once the trial uh, once the trial is over. Wow. Well, very interesting. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, my appreciation to Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a new formula for reducing complications after a kidney transplant. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An upstate professor who specializes in kidney transplants believes he's found a way to curb major complications after surgery. I'm talking with Dr. Ole Pankowitz. He and a team of transplant surgeons, nurse coordinators, students, and researchers from the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine published a paper recently in the journal Clinical Transplantation. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Pankowitz. Well, thank you for having me, Amber. Good morning to you. Well, I'd like to start by having you explain what are the major complications after a kidney transplant and which ones are most common? Okay, well, there, there are several. Uh, the most common are actually infectious. So um, more of our patients will have urinary infections or other infections after transplant, but right after that is rejection. So rejection nowadays, uh, they, about five to 7% of our patients uh, experience a rejection episode after transplantation. Doesn't mean they'll lose their kidney from the rejection episode, it means they need more, more therapy to reverse that and they can maintain good kidney function. Our biggest problem is patients need to take their medicines on time and every day, and that prevents rejection. But those are the two major uh, uh, complications after transplantation. And so this, uh, the rejection threat is there despite the fact that you've made a match between, you've carefully chosen a kidney that would match with this person, right? Well, you know, because of the lack of organs, we don't really match uh, for tissue typing that much. There is a consideration for good tissue typing matches, but with the lack of organs, many of our patients are not perfectly matched. They're matched for blood type, obviously, but uh, very few of them are uh, perfect matches uh, from deceased donor uh, organs because there's just a lack of organs. All right, well, let's focus on the risk of rejection. Does every patient who gets a kidney transplant have to take anti-rejection or immunosuppressive drugs afterward? Yes. Okay. Um, currently, there is no protocol for to uh, elicit tolerance. So everyone has to take immunosuppressive drugs for as long as the kidney is working. Um, and hopefully that'll be for the rest of their lives. But the, the number and the doses go down with time. 
but we have to be careful because we can also lower it too low in our patients. And that's always been the conundrum, how much of the medications to give to prevent rejection, prevent uh, immune reactions to the kidney, and maintain kidney health. So how do these medications actually work? They, they suppress the body's immune system, or do they work on the organ? No, they, they uh, suppress the body's immune system. So many of the medications we use are used for rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune systemic lupus um, erythematosus for other autoimmune diseases to control the immune system. We give larger amounts of the same for bone marrow transplants. So we reduce the, uh, the patient's immunity and that's why they're more susceptible to infections. And you're, so you're trying to prevent the body's immune system from fighting the organ? Correct. Correct, from recognizing it as being foreign and rejecting it. So the drug that you would give someone for a kidney transplant, is it the same drug that a person would get if they had a heart transplant, lung transplant? Yes, there there are standards. So the current standard of immunosuppressive medications are more than 85% of of transplant programs around the country use the combination of tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil. Um, that combination is the most widely used combination and has been extremely successful in preventing rejection and allowing transplant uh, organs to work longer. So are those two pills that a person would take or are they intravenous? No, those are tablets. So um, the tacrolimus is a capsule and the mycophenolate is a capsule. Typically they're given twice a day once in the morning and once in the evening. And then along with some programs use a little bit of steroids, redo a little bit, and other programs try to avoid it sort of 50-50 around the country now. Can you talk about the side effects that can be expected with someone who's taking these medications? Right, so tacrolimus uh, is our mainstay and um, it causes, uh, the side effects are one, neurologic, so, if the dose is too high or the levels are too high, we monitor levels very, very carefully to maintain the medications within a therapeutic range. So tacrolimus can cause neurotoxicity, mostly tremors, sometimes diarrhea, uh, and mycophenolate can cause an upset stomach and diarrhea as well. Uh, both of them will reduce your lymphocytes. Uh, well, mycophenolate will reduce your lymphocytes and maybe increase your risk for viral infections. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ole Pankowitz. He's a professor who specializes in organ transplant, and we're talking about a formula he uses to minimize complications after a kidney transplant. Can you please describe for us how you did your study? Well, it's kind of interesting. I spent some time in another institution where they were measuring mycophenolate blood levels. So after transplantation, we monitor tacrolimus blood levels very, very carefully. And uh, we sort of know what a normal range is for that medication. And that's been accepted now for a long time. The medication's been around since the late 80s, early 90s. But mycophenolate is a very complex uh, medication. It has a uh, what's called enterohepatic circulation, so that when you take the medication, it's absorbed in the stomach very quickly, and then it's processed by the liver. It's excreted as a metabolite, and then it's reabsorbed. So patients, when they take the medications, there are really three peaks. There are two peaks. There's one a half an hour later, and one about two hours later. So it's very complicated how to take these measurements and how to interpret them, and no one's really. Um, come up with a great way to do that. But I was at an institution that were doing these blood levels for about five years before I came there. And I went back and I looked at those levels and noticed that you really need to consider the mycophenolate levels and the tacrolimus levels together in order to get an idea of the total immunosuppressive burden the patient is seeing. Looking at one or the other independently really didn't give a good idea of outcomes. So I looked back at those records for a long time and came up with a, a formula that I thought would be very useful. And when I came here four and a half years ago, we started measuring mycophenolate levels as our standard of care. 
And when I look back at those patients, they behave very similarly to the other centers. And so we published this formula where you take the mycophenolate. We, our patients would have three blood levels done, usually about two months after transplant, one before they take the medication, one a half an hour later, one two hours later. Then you integrate those three plus the metabolite. You add them together and you multiply by the tacrolimus level and you come up with a, with a range. And if patients who stayed in that range did extremely well. Uh, patients who were out of that range either were too high and had infections or were too low and had rejections. So this range in our hands ended up being between about 600 and 1,000. And if you stayed in that level, mostly around 800, uh, you pretty much had a stable uh, post-transplant course without those two major complications. And that's what we published on the basis of 110 patients here. And now what we're doing is we're, we're now having a standard of care. We measure the levels. We alter the doses of the medication to what we think achieve an optimal level. We recheck it. And if they're in an optimal level, we just maintain that for the first year. So I think, and with that, we've had many fewer um, adverse events and many fewer rejections. So that seems to be uh, borne out, and I'm hoping that this becomes standard of care, you know, in other transplant centers to see if what we see is truly the same as their experience would be in other centers. So if I understand you correctly, there's the, the formula, uh, an individual patient may be taking one amount and a different patient may end up taking a different amount based on the readings from their blood tests, right? Correct. And it's very difficult to predict the mycophenolate blood levels. That medication is extremely complex, and someone may be taking what you think is a therapeutic dose, and they don't absorb very much of it. Another patient may be taking a very small dose, but they absorb much more of that medication, are exposed to that medication at higher blood levels. So really, when you think about it, also, there's a difference in metabolism of drugs between um, African-Americans and Caucasians. And so uh, you have, you know, it's very tricky to know how much a person is actually being exposed to. So, so what we did was we we measured their exposure, see exactly how much of that medication is in their system. So it uh, it takes into account all the genetic differences in terms of drug metabolism between people. Um, yeah, so it turned out to be quite interesting. So if an individual's exposure was low, you could adjust and give them more. Correct. But the trick with mycophenolate is that if you change the dose, the second level is unpredictable. It's not a one-to-one. -one. So if someone's taking 500 twice a day, and you go to 1,000, their blood levels don't double. You really don't know what their second blood level is. So that's why we have to measure the levels again a month or two later to see where we are. It's really unpredictable. But if they're on the same dose for a long time, it seems as though their exposure stays very constant. I was going to ask that too. Over time, over years, might it change as a person's body changes? Well, that's very interesting. We've done repeat levels on people who've been on the same dose for a year, two, three years, and it turns out it's almost identical. Uh, wow. So, yes, the, the drug exposure remains pretty constant, and that's a good thing with this medication. The bad thing is when you change the dose, you really don't know what the exposure is. Well, now that you have this formula, how do you get the word out to transplant surgeons everywhere else? Well, uh, two ways. Well, we published it in a peer-reviewed journal, so I'm hoping people read it in a transplant journal, one that's circulated widely. Uh, we've presented this work uh, at, conference, at national conferences for the last two years at the American Society of uh, Transplantation uh, conferences. And also at a Minnesota, there was a small conference of transplant specialists. So we've presented this work on national stages uh, for the last couple of years, and now it's published in, um, in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm hoping that it catches on. Well, from the patient's point of view, what does this new knowledge mean? Does it change the way they receive care? Are they going to need more blood work than they did before? Or is there anything concrete that changes for the patient? Well, for the patient, it would mean um, an additional two blood, blood um, phlebotomies. 
So when we do the mycophenolate, it's three samples rather than just one. And it's a two hour time limit. So for most patients early on, they come to the clinic and by the time they have their blood work done and by the time they have other labs done and they see the physician, two hours almost goes by. So it's really that, not that much of an imposition for them. Um, the second one, maybe a little bit more because their visits are, are quicker. But what it does mean is that the risk for rejection or toxicity from the drugs goes down. So instead of having diarrhea, neurological events, infections, the risk of those go down and they'll have a much more, I'm hoping, a much more uh, stable course. And so far it's been work, it's working out that they that people are more stable with, with measuring their levels. Yeah. Sometimes they need much less than what they're on. Uh, so they, you know, they, they have fewer side effects. So you expect that this will impact some of the side effects that come from taking the anti-rejection medicines? Correct. So the whole purpose of this is to get an ideal exposure to these drugs for each individual patient. So some patients may need more or less of one drug depending on their clinical situation. So you can, you can vary the doses of either one as long as it stays within that therapeutic window. Interesting. Well, I understand you're getting near retirement. Looking back on a career in organ transplant, what are the advances in the field of which you are most proud? And I recall when, when I started in the field of transplantation, we had our first national meeting and it was held in Chicago in a single ballroom. And there were maybe about three, 400 people in that ballroom at the most, at the most. And now they're held in convention centers with thousands and thousands of transplant specialists. And I've seen the program of transplantation itself go through a period where rejection rates were 60, 50% in the mid eighties to something like 10% after the um, discovery of dacrolimus and cyclosporin, which made a tremendous difference in acceptance of organ transplant. Now it's the, it's the therapy of choice for people who have chronic kidney disease. And I've just seen the, the field get better, the immunology, the, the knowledge of the immune system has exploded uh, in transplantation along with uh, bone marrow transplantation. And it's just an exciting field to be in and see all that develop over the last, looks like, you know, 30, 30 years or longer. So it's been, it's been a lot of, a um, lot of excitement in the field. I'm very proud of, of what's happened in transplantation. Well, it sounds like some major improvements and it sounds like your formula is a major improvement. So congratulations on that. I hope so. I hope that it helps patients. Um, and I hope it catches on. Thank you very much. Thank you to Dr. Ole Pankowitz, a professor specializing in organ transplant at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two distinct and contrasting images of becoming older are on view in our next selections. Mary Gardner, a poet from Skinny Atlas, New York, offers us an upbeat assessment of our future in her poem, Now That You Mention It. How do we measure the universe of the downsized life? Is it in corners and rooms, stairs and square feet, digital connections and competence, more or less? Is it in the choice of reusable market bags, something sturdy and small for shopping day by day, perhaps a souvenir from street markets in Vienna or Bogota? Is it in the number of place settings, the vintage of table and chairs, china and stemware, the telling features of menu and recipes? Is it in the roads not taken or taken, the time of day for meeting up, in opting for a small, sensible vehicle, yet hankering for a canvas top? Is it in keeping the lustrous, brass-hinged Jenny Lynn trunk, maps and notes on journeys taken, others to come? Now that you mention it, how do we measure the universe of the downsized life when one's abiding sense of life is not quite downsized? For a more somber view, we share Laura Grace Weldon's poem, 
Here is Tumble Dry Hang. It sounds like a chain winding on a rusty reel, though it's only the dryer tumbling his laundry. They're trapped now, he and she, in a white-walled, wide-doored matchbox for the aged. Matches flare at a skip across red phosphorus and powdered glass grit, but what they were is sodden now, cramped into cliches, like the ones relatives mutter on the phone, the ones nurses unspool like dressings around his festering leg. They took his car keys last spring, or rather took his car, leaving them both wrung out and shrunk, left to dry. Folding laundry once meant finding tickets, maps, receipts, soaked and tumbled to silky shreds, along with crinkly golia wrappers, the licorice candy they brought back as sweet reminders of Italy. He sleeps in the recliner, head flung back, mouth dropped in surprise, while his keys fling around and around and around. An earlier version of herself would have taken them out, tisked, clunked them on his desk. Instead, she stands at the window, watches the dryer steam vent from the building, exhaling into a wide, waiting sky. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, wellness tips for those who find themselves working from home. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.